it's a, kind of beyond a joy and a privilege to introduce our guest this afternoon is Lisa Sharon Harper. I've read blogs and listened to podcasts and YouTube talks that Lisa has given over the years. And my wife, Jen, is here. And Jen, for the first time ever, is going to be part of this podcast and kind of ask a couple of questions because she generally knows a little bit more than I do about things. And uh, Jen was part of a, a panel discussion down at an event in Dublin uh, on Sunday called Rubicon that Greg Fromholtz would put on. And I actually so foolishly hadn't actually looked at the lineup of Rubicon. And when I got there, I realized that Lisa Sharon Harper was the kind of the keynote speaker. And um, Jen and I were both a little bit starstruck and then found out that she was going to be in Belfast. So we've wangled our way to have lunch and spend a bit of time and um so it's it's really good so thank you lisa for for being here and agreeing to be part of this podcast. this has been fabulous thank you so much everybody um you know they took me all over belfast so i got to see all the great um well the the, the holy sacred land mm. where where conflict rose and where god stepped in mm. and actually brought peace where there was only conflict. So I want to say thank you guys yeah. for that. And also thank you to your friends who are lending us their living room to do this, <laughs> to do this podcast episode. So and thank you. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. the dog, there's a dog laying on Jen's lap. That's right. <laughs> no, very good. So anyway, let's um, get stuck in. So the theme of this series of podcasts uh, at guardians of the flame is highlighting profiling uh, people who have exhibited courageous lives and who have um, resources of knowledge that can help us to Im imagine what could faith look like in a way that heals the world and breaks down walls and builds bridges instead of faith being a demarcating line that separates us from them and creates just another version of tribalism. And so Lisa Sharon Harper, you're um, really someone who uh, fits that perfectly. You know, you've... Um, and I'd love you to, I'd love us to start this podcast by just you talking a little bit about what makes you, what makes Lisa Sharon Harper. I know of you as an African-American theologian writer, but amazingly, when I met you in Dublin, you started talking about your Ulster ancestry, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I wasn't expecting. And, it, you know, so, and, and then that, obviously that then is the framework for a new book you have. And so maybe we start with your, what, brings you here what's your ulster connection and then we'll we'll start going into a little bit of the theme of your new book okay so it's really interesting i've my me and my mom um we bond more than anything else through our family story and so we you know we had a very contentious um relationship after i found jesus um, and, and I can get into that a little bit later but the reality is is that i found jesus in the context of a white fundamentalist kind of a church. Um, and my mom had been in the civil rights movement. She literally dated Stokely Carmichael, the black power oh, guy. <laughs> yes, yeah, for real. So that didn't mix well. And she basically said, who are you and what have you done with my child? And so we went for decades without really having relationship at all. Not really. Mm. Um, not having good, trusting, loving relationship. There was always love, not a lot of trust on either side. And so it was when we began to do our family tree work that we began to bond. And it was in the midst of that decades into it, that my mom made a discovery. And it was a discovery that, um, of, of this woman named fortune 
who lived back in the 1600s in Maryland, who she thought might actually be related to us because her, uh, I think it was her great-grandfather's name was Philip Fortune. And um, so she found some things online with a family that had the last name Fortune. It was named after her. And bottom line is that that led to probably the last 10 years of research for me on Ancestry.com and various other sites and um, and and has uncovered this incredible story of um, or helped me to understand the story more of a woman named Maudlin McGee um, who fell in love with, we believe, and had a child, definitely, named Fortune um, with a man named Sambo Game, and he was from Senegal. And so Maudlin came over to the United States, or it wasn't the United States, it was the colony of Maryland um, back in 1682 with her husband, George McGee. It's possible that they weren't married yet, that they, that they found each other in the colony and got married, but it's also possible that they got married. And that's one of the things I'm here to find out, um, that George and, and Maudlin got married here in, in Ireland. They were Ulster Irish. And I didn't understand what Ulster, I know there, there was a such thing as Ulster Irish, because honestly, not a lot of people talk about Ulster anything. They only say Irish. And it's it's all the Irish in America that celebrate St. Patty's Day and all of that, right? So all of that division isn't really so much there. Um, so it was in the midst of my, my research that that kind of all got uncovered. And I realized that the first wave of um, of Irish that came to America were Ulster Irish, and they were escaping from an uprising of um, of Irish Irish, whose land they had taken for the English. So it was very convoluted, you know, back in the turn of the 16th century into the 17th century, and it was in that context of them coming, escaping. Um, uh, being killed basically because thousands of people died um, of of Ulster Irish died in the midst of that that time that uprising they came to to Maryland in order to find some sense of freedom but they had in them this impetus to settle land other people's land and so what happened is the McGees came Maudlin had fortune she also died. But George McGee and his children ended up going down into the Deep South, and they became some of the first settlers in the Deep South, taking the land from the Native Americans there, and then becoming some of the most prolific slave owners and holders in throughout the South, which is so interesting. And I don't, I, it, I don't think it's my job as someone primarily of African descent in America to do that deep work of figuring that out. But there's something to consider there. And I think there's something in the history. We were talking earlier about the sins of the father being passed down to the fifth, fourth, third and fourth generation. Well, there's something to be considered about the Ulster history of being used by the English to take land from the Irish and then leaving and doing the same thing in the United States and becoming um, becoming the people who who crush the image of God, quite honestly, you know, in in plain English, in the U.S. So the story, the 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 book's name is Fortune, 
And it starts with the, with the story of fortune in the first chapter, but it doesn't end there. Um, every chapter goes into a different um, generation of my family. And each there's three parts of the book. The first part is all the seeds of the break, like the seeds of, of the fall um, uh, that happened, not just in my family, but also in America. Then the next three chapters is part two, and that's the struggle and the resistance um, to oppression. And the last chapter is on reparation. What will it take to repair what the hierarchies of human belonging that we codified into law and the way we do business, the way we live life together, what will it take to repair what those things broke in our in our world, in our families, in ourselves? Mm. Yeah, I think it, it touch what you're describing kind of touches on in some ways what I have is maybe my I don't want to say my lifelong quest like I'm like 75 and you know learned but I do have this deep desire to find out what is what is it that will heal a country and and an ancient wound um, and I suppose um, I grew up as a New Zealand immigrant in Northern Ireland in the middle of a conflict, the Troubles. Um, and I was in the kind of a charismatic evangelical context a lot of the time. And they were in the 80s and 90s trying to deal with this question, but often the tools at their disposal were often, it was, it was about prayer was the thing. And I remember seeing, you know, even to this day, you'll see a stage in a an African-American person and a white person, and the white person will say sorry or something. And the black person will forgive them. And, and I think that can be very powerful, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of symbolic. It's, it's about prayer somehow, you know, the theology would be where somehow breaking something in this heavenlies. Yeah. Now racism is dead because they said sorry to each other, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've always, I've grown increasingly over the last 20 years, uncomfortable with that or, or seeing how, Short, it falls. Absolutely. And um, it failed. I mean, yeah. that, those efforts in the 1990s, in particular, the Promise Keepers movement mm. was the one that really kind of propagated mm. that, that mm. whole idea, go hug a black man, be reconciled yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. their big rallies. Oh. Um, and, and what happened was, you know, they said, everybody go, go back and get a black friend. And they did. Mm. And the black friends said, okay, I'll come along with you to lunch. And over lunch, they'd say, well, let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about, they'd say, oh, tell us about your family. And in telling about your family, you have to mention systems and policy and structures because my son is in prison because they just picked, they they lowered the bar of criminality and they focused all their police on our neighborhood. And so because he was carrying a dime bag of marijuana, he got 10 years in prison. Wow. Right, right. Like that's ridiculous because, yeah. but that was the intent. That's why they did that was to get black boys off the street, to mm-hmm. confine and control us once again, to find another way. So basically what happened was the black, the black men got to the lunch table, started talking about their families and their neighborhoods and, and the white men were like, wait, wait, you're, you're bringing politics into it. You're yeah. ruining this. Yeah. You're yeah. ruining this. And so um, that whole effort really just, crumbled yeah. because they did not talk about, they just never even mentioned the need to deal with systems and structures. Yeah. So can we go there? Can we talk about that systems and structures? You know, it's like sure. if you ask a fish what water is, he's not going to tell you they, they swim in water. It's mm-hmm. if you ask me what air is, it's, you just breathe it. I don't know what it is. You mm-hmm. know, the system mm-hmm. of injustice um, 
in divided societies, often one one group has benefited more than the other and mm-hmm. has benefited from the oppression of the other. I, you quintessentially see that in in America with the um, the black population, the legacy of slavery. Slavery was abolished what and the end of the Civil War, hundred and fifty years ago. Um, but um, then Jim Crow, and still to this day, white supremacy is rearing its ugly head and it's mm-hmm. the it seems to be the water that america swims in and in many of our places of conflict there's some kind of injustice some system of um of exclusion and oppression that exists and what would be profound would be christians evangelical christians um dis- uncovering a theology that says they must not just address personal sin but systemic sin and mm-hmm. they mustn't just hug a black person, mm-hmm. but they must understand the, how they benefit from the implicit racism. They must they resist with the black person. Yeah. So right? how does they it must, look like? Yeah. And what is it? What is that system? What, is what are we system? resisting? Yeah. What's yeah. System? Well, okay. So here's a really, it, I can, I'll go back to the book. The mm-hmm. name of the book is fortune. It'll most likely God willing, knock on wood and mm-hmm. pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that it comes out in 2020. Mm. Um, that's the goal. The intent is that it would come out by fall of 2020. But thinking about um, even just about Fortune's life, the reason why she's so important, I think, not just for me and my family, but to all of us to understand, she was born in 1687. 1664 was the first time a race law had been p- passed in Maryland. Mm. So... And the issue they were dealing with in Maryland was not the same issue they were dealing with in Virginia, but it led to the same result. In Virginia, the issue they were dealing with was the issue of white men, um, slave owners and overseers, raping enslaved black women and producing mixed race children. And because the race laws in Virginia were at that time in that colony based on the laws in England, the law in England said you can't enslave a British citizen, not just can't do that. And you can't enslave a Christian. So if somebody was baptized, they couldn't they could no longer be enslaved. Um, and uh, the the status, the the citizenship status of the child followed the father. So now you have all these white men raping these black women, mm-hmm. getting mixed race kids. And finally, this one woman named Elizabeth Key, who was a, um, a mixed race woman, black and white. Her father was a British citizen. And so she went to the courts and she said, um, hello, courts. I am a British citizen because my father is a British citizen and my father has had me baptized. So therefore, you cannot enslave me. And they she won. They let her go because According to the law, she could not be enslaved. And several other people, after she won her case, said, wait a minute, I'm a British citizen too, because my father is also a British citizen. And I also was baptized. So all these people started winning their cases. So the House of Burgesses, the the legal um, body, the, the legislature in, um, in Virginia, they said, wait a minute, we're going to lose our livelihood. We're going to lose our money because this is the free labor that makes our prosperity possible. So we must change the law. So they changed the law. They changed how one got their status of citizenship from the father to the mother. Mm -hmm. 
So now if your mother is black, if your mother is enslaved, you will be enslaved in perpetuity. So your children and their children and their children and their children. That was Virginia. But that was the issue that was happening in Virginia. Something I learned through doing this family research is that law is never crafted from philosophy. It just doesn't like people don't just get an idea and make a law. Law is always created in the context of a problem to be solved, an actual problem in real life, real time that legislatures are trying to solve. So the problem they were trying to solve in Maryland was very different. It's like the opposite side of the coin. White women were coming over from England and Ireland, especially Ireland, and they were falling in love with enslaved black men. And they were, they were getting married to enslaved black men. And that could not be tolerated by the white male legislature. So they said, we've got to do something about this. So they, they changed the law in six, two years after Virginia in 1664. And they said, we hereby declare that any white woman who marries an enslaved black man shall become a slave herself mm. until her until her husband's death and her children shall be enslaved in perpetuity now now think about that on the surface that just sounds wow that's horrible but you know what it was it was economically beneficial to the white men mm. because now they have not only have they gained enslaved people that they never had to pay for, but they have gained them in perpetuity. Uh -huh. In other words, that, that woman has just now given not only her children, but her children's children and her children's children's children uh -huh. to that one white man. Uh -huh. So what happened was that they, they started men, white men started to force their, their Irish indentured servants to marry black men, enslaved black men, so that they would gain, this is like, this was, this is what was happening. Wow. So, so that they would gain um, the access to, um, to all of this free labor. And so in order to protect the white women, the churches stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. And they said, instead of, instead of the slave owner actually managing everything, we will manage it. So then the church becomes the managers of the indentures in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, well, not finally, there's actually two more steps to this. So this is really interesting. So there, there happens to be this woman named Irish Nell mm -hmm. who comes over from, from, uh, from Ireland and she's brought by Lord Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Lord Baltimore is the guy who's like in charge of all of Maryland. He owns the deal, like mm -hmm. kind of. And so Irish Nell, her real name is Eleanor Butler. She's 16 years old. Um, he is trying to marry her. He's trying to bring her to marry her on, on Maryland soil. But when she gets there, she's housed with a friend of his who has enslaved people. And she falls in love with Charles, a man named Charles. And so they, she is determined to marry Charles. People beg her, don't marry Charles. That means you're going to be enslaved if you marry Charles. She says, I don't care. I love him anyway. And so she loves, so she loves him so much, she marries him. But then she begs Lord Baltimore to get them to change the law so that she doesn't have to be enslaved. 
And he does. He goes to the legislature and he, he like wrangles the legislature and convinces them to change the law. So they change the law. But it's too late for Irish Nell because she's already married. So she doesn't get to benefit from that. So she in, remains enslaved for a time and her children remain in, and grandchildren remain enslaved until the Revolutionary War when the the ownership of the land changes hands from England to the United States of America. Then they're set free. So that's Irish Nell. That was 1681. Mm. One year later is when George McGee um, sets sail with who we believe will be Maudlin McGee, his mm -hmm. wife, and sets sail from Ulster, most likely from Derry. In 1682, they get there, and four years later, a young African-American or African man named Sambo from Senegal, his name means second son, mm. he is loaded onto the into the bowels of a slave ship and never sees his homeland again and reaches Maryland, same area, Somerset County, Maryland. And they meet and they fall in love and they have a young girl named Fortune. But in the midst of that time, because of Irish Nell, when Fortune was born, she would have not been enslaved and she wouldn't have been indentured and her her mother Maudlin would not have been enslaved or indentured because that was the law because of Irish Nell. But a few years after that, Lord Baltimore fell out of favor. Mm. And um, so the the legislature then went like whole hog on um, back on indenture and enslavement. And um, they took Fortune to court. Mm. It's the only reason we even know about her is because they took her to court after she was born. Um, after that, that, that law passed, they said, you need to be indentured. Um, post haste basically mm. you know mm. so she ended up having to be indentured until she was 20 31 years old wow. 31 years old and she had children while she was indentured mm. and no fathers were ever mentioned mm. and her children had children while they were indentured because the law that was passed um, by that legislature that went sour on lord baltimore mm. said well they don't have to be enslaved mm. but if a white woman has a mixed race marriage with a black man, then she will have to be indentured for seven years. Mm. And her children will have to be indentured for 31 years. Mm. And if a mixed race child, person, woman, has um, gets married or has children, illegitimate children with a white man, then her children will have to be indentured for 21 years. Mm. And if a mixed race woman has children by a black man, then her children will have to be indentured for 31 years. Wow. So here is where you see mm. the bifurcation, the, the, the privilege of whiteness. Mm. You see it in the number of years of service. That's like the very mm. first. And also, if you are a white woman and you have this kind of relationship, you cannot be enslaved now, mm. but you can be indentured. But if you're a black woman, you you can be enslaved. Can be enslaved. So again, this is this is the structure. Mm. This is the beginning of the, the beginning racial of structure. A structure that has become prevalent is totally throughout it hits the whole everything. of your society. It hits everything. So a modern day white person in America could say, but um, Lisa, that was hundreds of years ago. You know, we've had Abraham Lincoln. We've had um, you know the Civil Rights Act. 
we've had Barack Obama, you know, mm-hmm. like surely we can just let bygones be bygones. Like how mm-hmm. does the system still stay intact like that? Oh, well, the system, the system exists. Um, there's always, whenever there's a pushback against white supremacy, there's always a pushback for it. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you have, when, when, when the whole thing with Maudlin happened and, um, and her, her family eventually actually did become free. They were all free, like by 1745. Um, but they were free in an, in an area that was becoming progressively more and more enslaved. Mm-hmm. And um, more and more Africans were being brought over from Africa. And so the slave codes became much more stringent um, and, uh, and much more harsh. And uprisings were happening all over the place. And yet still, um, um, and because of that, the the repercussions became much more harsh. So when the Civil War happened and everyone was set free, you know, you started with only, you only had a maximum um, of 400,000 Africans that were ever brought to America. Mm-hmm. But by the end, by the beginning of the Civil War, you had 4 million mm-hmm. African Americans in North America, uh-huh. in the United States. So basically what you're, what you have to understand is that you know, the Civil War, yes, it, it ended slavery, mm. at least if you're not imprisoned. Mm. So that that little caveat in the 13th Amendment was there to placate the South. It was mm. there to give the South an out, and it did. Mm. So after the Civil War, they got together, and guess where it happened? In the vestry of a church. Mm. In the vestry of a church, they came up wow. with redlining and Jim Crow. Wow. And it was an Episcopal church in Richmond, Virginia. It was the same church, by the way, where, where General Lee and also Jefferson Davis went to church. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Paul's Episcopal Church in, in Richmond. So in this vestry, they dreamed up redlining and Jim Crow, but they also had the practice of um, convict leasing and peonage. So they lowered the barfs of criminality, criminality so that if a young boy was sitting on a park bench for too long, he could be picked up for vagrancy. And they would never have a trial. They would just throw him in jail, in prison. And that prison was a work farm, the same plantation he had just been freed from. So once they're in prison, they can essentially enslave them again. That And that's what they did. They literally did. And that's how they got free labor. Because America's economic system has always existed on the backs of free or low-cost labor. So, you know, they have this, you might call it like a, a, a great, like wrenching of the Southern economy when the Civil War ends slavery. Well, how are we gonna plow these fields? How are we gonna how are we gonna get our crops and how are we gonna make our money? And so for a long time they just didn't. They it kind of it went down. Ooh. <laughs> There's a beloved dog here. Is uh, snoring, the dog is snoring on the couch, so it's it's That's not generalized. Uh, if you're listening, oh my to God, that. I, was like, I didn't yeah. know what that was. I literally thought it was somebody ringing a bell or something outside. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, hi there, baby. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, so their 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 economy mm. went down, mm. and it's funny too because in the eleven years or nine years after the Civil War. Not only did the Southern economy go down, but black freedom skyrocketed. Mm. So in that time, mm. you had white people whose economy was suffering while black people were thriving. Mm. 
We elected 1,000 1, elected officials to public office in those nine years. Wow. Talk about voting. Talk mm-hmm. about like exercising mm-hmm. your yeah. your inherent call to exercise dominion, right, in the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. as a human being. That happened. Mm-hmm. But that that leveling of power was an existential threat to white power that had been established for 200 Mm -hmm. and now 60 something years. Mm -hmm. So that was when you had the rise of Mm -hmm. the Klan and Mm -hmm. you had the rise of the white white supremacists Mm -hmm. um, who began to take over state houses. Mm -hmm. And there was a deal made, a political deal made where the troops were pulled out of the American South and they they told them you guys can take care of your race mm-hmm. problem in your way if we can keep our person in office mm-hmm. um, in the who won the election but it was contentious mm-hmm. um, and so he they he got to stay but the South also got to play they got to actually deal with their race problem in their way mm-hmm. and that's when lynching started mm-hmm. that was when the lynching just like mm-hmm. took over and okay. um more than 5,000 people were lynched over the over less than a century, over about 70 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you, you just see you're painting a picture of this kind of creeping, uh, inexorable wave of um, oppression of a people group um, who had, were othered. They were dark-skinned, them, you know. But, you know, but here's what I don't want. I don't want people to think that it's because these white people are so evil. Mm. It's not about the evil of white Mm. people. Mm -hmm. What it's about is it's about, I'm not sure exactly where this comes from, but it's about a sense of a zero-sum game Mm. that people of European descent have always had. Well, not always, but since the since pretty near the beginning mm-hmm. of their time on U.S. soil, on that soil, they have thought and and interacted with it as if someone has to be a loser and someone has to be a winner, mm-hmm. and we're going to make sure the winner is us. Mm-hmm. And so, and the us in America was racialized. Mm-hmm. It was white people, and the whiteness, whiteness as a construct, a political construct. Mm-hmm started in order to protect the econ- the economic holdings and prosperity of white men. Mm. And so um, when things were called black, it was the exact opposite. Whiteness equals fully human. Whiteness equals able to flourish. Whiteness equals able to exercise dominion on land. Blackness then equals the opposite of that. Mm. Not fully human. Not called to exercise dominion. Not called or has the capacity to to own land and 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 steward it well, and so so the laws then um, were crafted to protect whiteness, mm-hmm. and that same thing happened after the Civil War and after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which was fought by people fighting back against um, that wave of oppression um, that came from peonage and redlining and Jim Crow, right? So when they win the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, you know, it's not like white supremacy just said, oh, sorry, okay, we're we're good, right? They didn't do that. Instead, what they did was they mounted a silent war that now has led to mass incarceration. They did the same thing, actually. They just lowered the bar of criminality, but they they focused on drugs. They called it the drug wars, 
and the drug wars then became mm -hmm. the the focus of um, that that space where we could control and confine people of African descent in order to create more and more white space in America. Mm. And that was called the suburbs. Mm. So Jen, why don't you ask a question? Here? Yes. Jen, nice to see you. Oh, nice <laughs> to see you too. Very excited. Hello. Yeah. Hello, Guardians people. Um, so interesting and eye-opening to hear you talk um, about um, institutional racism and the obviously knock-on effect and, do you know, and white people, you know, will say, well, I had nothing to do with that. I said, well, you, you may not have built the house, but you're living in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how would you, as a person of faith, also encourage us as fellow people of faith, um, living in this, in these structures, within these structures, mm -hmm. what are ways in which we can begin to address, dismantle, um, undermine, look at these powers and principalities mm -hmm. at work? Oh, that's such a great question. Thank you so much. I mean, one, I think that it's important for us to, well, we have to see it in ourselves, right? First, more than anything else, we do have to actually understand that we are not just operating apart from these systems and structures, but we've all been soaking in it. We've been, all of us, been soaking in worlds that have been racialized or otherized um, for generations. And I mean, for hundreds of years. So how can then we escape having these prejudices, having these assumptions about the other that have never been really corrected? Um, so there's this thing called the Harvard Implicit Association Test that I really um, recommend for everybody to take. You can do go online and take it in 20 minutes. It's really actually kind of fun. Um, and you're going to get really mad at the test in the middle of it because they're trying to trick me, you know, oh, that kind of thing. Oh, they're trying to make to the sure, you know, they're trying to make me racist. I'm not racist, all that stuff, right? That's not what they're <laughs> trying to do. The theory of the test is that they actually put images in front of you and you have to like choose one or the other, choose something, choose this response or that response. And their theory is that they are actually planting like planting images and prejudices in your head. But the theory is if those prejudices were already there, then it would take you more time to get over them. Mm. And if they're not there, then it'll take you less time to get over them. Right. Okay. So right. it'll be, it'll be, it'll feel freeing to not have them there anymore, as opposed to you having to do some mental gymnastics to get, o to get, to get over right. what they've already put there. So, so what they found is that 75% of the people all over the world who have taken this, implicit bias test has tested positive yes. for implicit bias toward whiteness. Now, what that means, what is implicit bias, right? So bias is just when we, we, we say, I like this more than that. I'm biased mm -hmm. toward this. I prefer this more than I prefer that. Implicit bias is the is the opposite of explicit bias, yes. right? So I think explicit basically means conscious. I'm conscious of this bias that I have toward whiteness or toward spaghetti or towards, or towards couches as opposed to chairs, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have biases, right? Now, implicit bias is, is unconscious. It's the unconscious associations that we make in our mind in order to shorten our thought processes. So instead of looking at that thing over there and saying, that's a chair, it has four legs, a back and a seat. Therefore it is a chair. We just look and we go chair, mm -hmm. right? That's what, that's implicit bias. Mm -hmm. 
So implicit bias, everybody has it, everybody does it. Implicit bias is normal. But when we racialize it, that's when it becomes problematic. So when we look and we say criminal black or black criminal, that's implicit bias Mm -hmm. versus saying that person has stolen something Mm -hmm. or that person has, I saw them break into my car. No, you just see a black person standing by your car and you think criminal. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's Gosh. implicit bias yes. at work. Yes. So so the test makes us aware okay. of our implicit biases. And they what they say is that there's no way to get past implicit bias unless you become aware of it. So the right. first step is becoming aware. Right. Yeah. The I mean, if you go to my book, The Very Good Gospel, I actually on in chapter nine, there's a whole list of of actions and steps we can take in order to lower our implicit bias measure. Mm. Um, the first thing you do is take the test. The second, the next several things you do are things to lower that that measurement um, in our in our souls and psyches. Brilliant, mm-hmm. wonderful. A whole chapter on how to how to get over it. Couldn't ask for more. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the first book because um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about, and I've heard you you know write a little bit about um, Genesis 1, right? Yeah. And, um, and this idea of shalom mm-hmm. and how do we how do we live that? What does that look like? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about shalom and a little bit about how we have understood or misunderstood the word dominion and how that goes? Yeah. Together, if it does, please. Well, well, you know, so shalom is a concept that is all over the Bible. There's I think the word or forms of the word are mentioned five over 500 times in the Old Testament. 50 times in the New Testament, um, or several, actually several times, and lots of times in the New Testament. Um, and it's a, the, the New Testament form of the word is erene, which means peace in Greek. And so, you know, when, what, when we see this word in forms of the word, you see things that are about reparation, about restitution, about um, reciprocity, about truth-telling, about justice being like married hand in hand with peace. These are the these are the images we get throughout the Old Testament. But where I believe you see the clearest picture of Shalom is Genesis one. Mm-hmm. And that's that place where that space in in the Genesis narrative that's actually a poem. It's actually this epic Hebrew poetry written in, you know, seven stanzas basically for the seven days and with lots of repetition. And the last words, like there's there's this phrase that happens in the last day that is it says very good. And very is the word me'od, and good is tov. And so tov is the the way that the Hebrews would have understood tov is that it exists between things. Tov goodness exists between things, things. not in the thing itself. So when God looks around at the end of the sixth day and says, this is tov me'od, right? What God is saying is that all of the relationships in creation are radically good. So it's not about, Matt, this is so critical. This is key. This changes everything. 
Because what we have learned in our westernized Christianity, and Christianity is not a Western religion, by the way. Hello, Amen. somebody. Hey. Right. In our westernized Christianity, we've taken on a Greek conception of goodness and perfection, which was about the thing. They placed it inside the thing. Their project was to find the perfectly level floor, the perfect microphone, like, and then to be the perfect person. And so we took our understanding of sin from the Greeks. Sin equals what? Missing the mark of perfection, right? Mm -hmm. So now, therefore, I am imperfect, therefore I am sinful. That is not how the Hebrews understood sin, and it's not how God understood perfection. God, for perfection for God was about love. You even see that in Matthew 5, right? Where it says, who are you if you, if you love the people who love you? Love your enemy, and then you'll be something like, you know what I mean? And then, and what it is, be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And that's just talking about the father loving his enemies, mm. right? So be perfect, love those who are not hard to love. That's perfection because perfection exists between things mm. according to God. So yeah. what, what does God care about? God cares about relationships. So then what is sin in this, in this new understanding of what God is actually caring about. Sin is anything that breaks any of those relationships. It's what we do, not who we are. It's what we do in order to, that breaks those relationships. So shalom then is the radical wellness of those relationships. And to, to restore shalom is any of the work that we do that restores the bonds and, and, and relationships we were created to live within mm. the wellness of those relationships. Oh. Amen. Preach. Yeah. Um, I'll just pop back in here and, uh, I suppose, I suppose <laughs> I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you, you know, th this could be a complicated issue, but, uh, I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, uh, I've used a couple of times in this podcast, I've quoted um, a Baltimore writer I was talking to you about yesterday, Tanahasi Coates. Oh, yeah. Uh, who, atheist, I guess, agnostic atheist. No, I think he's uh, atheist. Writer. Um, <laughs> the book we know the best is Between the World and Me, which is a letter to his, his son. Um, and he, I think, one of the things that really brought him to notoriety was an article he wrote for The Atlantic about reparations. Mm -hmm. And I suppose. I am interested in places like here in Northern Ireland, even where we have a history. Sorry, if you hear snoring, that really is a I swear it's a, the dog. A, a young dog. Um, Definitely not snoring over here. I'll tell you that much. Between <laughs> Dan and me, um, opposite. But uh, so you funny. know, we have a history in Northern Ireland where we've had injustice. How do you fix it? Like, is there a case somehow? And I suppose that's what you're looking at to an extent in your book. Mm -hmm. Is there a case for reparations or what, what does that look like? What would it yes. look like to repair? Mm -hmm. uh, is, is, does, can you put a price tag on that? Or? That's a really great question. Mm -hmm. We did. We talked mm -hmm. about that last night, actually, at a book event here. And I was, I was really thinking, um, you know, obviously I'm writing the book thinking about it's literally mm -hmm. through the framework of my own family, right? right. So mm -hmm. fortune is literally about that. But, but I think that there are principles that we can, we can actually glean from Scripture that can help, I think, any post-colonized context or post-colonizing is a better way to put it, context. Um, the first thing that when I, when I think about reparation, I'm actually thinking in terms of repair. Mm. So reparation, literally the root 
it comes from the same root as the word for repair. And so when I ask the question of reparation, I'm not asking how much do I need to give you to shut you up? That's a very good distinction because it's a scary person. <laughs> That's right. So is it going to take a million dollars per person? Is it going to take $25 per person? Is it that's what white people reduce it to. Yes. Right? Yeah. I'm not asking that question. I'm asking a larger question. What will it take to repair the relationship that was broken? What will it take to repair the relationship? Because that's what it's all about that was broken. So then what we have to do is we have to go back to the genesis of the break. We have to ask, when did it break and how? So then you actually really do have to know your history. Mm. You have to know. And usually in colonized nations and post-colonizing nations, there is a moment where colonization happened. There's a moment, a first moment where colonization happened. And that for me is the most critical moment because the genesis is always the thing, right? So you go back to that moment and you ask, literally, how did it happen? Was it by edict of the queen? Was it, or, which I think it was actually in the case of Ireland with, um, it was either Mary Queen of Scots or it was Elizabeth I or both with the plantations, or maybe it was even way farther before them. Like I think it might've even been hundreds of years before them, right? So what was the moment? How did it happen? And usually in colonizing worlds and post-colonizing worlds, what you'll find is that at the heart of the moment was an interaction between two people groups. The colonizing people group came onto the land, usually with the doctrine of discovery in their hand. Oh yes, that, that old thing. <laughs> right, yeah. Where they said, by rule of the queen <laughs> or the king, um, you know, I hereby, you know, declare that you are not civilized. Mm. And so as a result, you do not have the right to exercise dominion on this land, but we are civilized and so we do, you know, and so we claim this land for the throne and we also will enslave you. Don't run, we own you now, right? So, <laughs> and so they're trying to run and they're like, no, 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 we own you, you know, and so, so they, and then they get them. Yeah. And so that, it was that moment, it was mm. that was the moment when the relationship broke. Because it was in that moment that they failed to see the image of God mm. in the people. And they failed to understand what that image of God implied. That as one who is made in the image of God, going back to Genesis, Genesis 1, now we're in verse 26. We're a little bit earlier in the same day, that sixth day. Genesis 1, 26 says, and let them be made in the image of God in God's likeness, and let them have dominion. Now, the having of dominion is actually literally spoken in the same breath as being made in the image of God. So these two things are inextricable in the text. You can't take one from the other. They're the same breath. So what it means to be made in the image of God is to be called to exercise dominion on the land. You can't. You can't have a human who is not called to exercise dominion on land. So when they looked at these people and said, you're not civilized, 
what they were doing is saying, you're not human. And actually, what they were also doing is they were declaring war on the image of God mm-hmm. because they broke the image of God. And kings and queens in that civilization, when this was written, they put their image all over their kingdoms in order to have a marker of where they rule. Yes. And the flourishing of those markers was also an indication of the flourishing of the kingdom. But where those markers were crushed, you knew there was war happening against that kingdom. Mm -hmm. So when we govern in ways that crush the image of God, cover over it, twist it down, melt it, um, then what we are also doing is we are, I believe, God sees this as declaring war on God. So in order to repair not only our relationship with that people, but with God, we must come back into right alignment with all of creation, not setting, and I by we, I say that very, very generously, (laughs) you know, not aligning ourselves with God as one who has the authority to, to do anything to the image of God because it's the maker of the image, but rather as one of the created ones, simply part of the community of creation. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like? It looks like what what David did in 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14, um, where David actually was, David was praying to God. He was, I don't think he was a new king at that time, but he was a king and he couldn't figure out why there was a famine in the land. He was like, God, why is there famine? My people are dying. Why is there famine? And then there's like a knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. (laughs) I just love the scripture for this reason. You just know it had to happen because you couldn't write this stuff, right? Like people would not believe it, but here it is. So knock, knock, knock. Uh, Mr. David, uh, yes, who are you? We are the Gibeonites. Um, Well, okay, so what do you want? They're like, well, actually, Saul killed all of our people and he wasn't supposed to do that. And then David goes, aha, you know, that's why there's a famine in the land. And this is how, this is what he does. And this is where I feel like this is our instructive piece. He says, he looks at them and he says, what do you say? that we should do for you so that Mm. things will be made well for you. Mm. And what is the, what's, Mm. what is that? That restores dominion to those who had dominion taken from them. It restores agency. They get to decide how it's repaired. And what they and they did not do an eye for an eye. I don't think most would do an eye for an eye. If they had said eye for an eye, then that that would have meant that all of the kingdom of Israel was massacred. We want everybody else to die. You'll be the only one standing. They could have done that, but they didn't. Instead, what they said is we want we want the heads of all of the generals that obeyed Saul's command to kill everybody. And David did not ask one question he simply did it did it and guess what god's response was you can always know i think here hermeneutically you can look and look for what is god's response to something to know what god how god feels about it and god's response 
is to restore the land. Very good. Boom. Very good example. Restore the land. So when, if, if there's going to be true peace, like if you really want to repair what was broken in this land called Ireland, Northern Ireland, mm. the Republic of Ireland, mm. I think what it's going to take is it's going to take those who came to the land and did not recognize the call of the Celtic people and the travelers to exercise dominion on this land and looked at them and said, I hereby declare mm. that we were called to exercise dominion on this land. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take them repenting of that. That's all it really is, is repentance. Mm. But it's figuring out what to repent for. And that's what, that's what I think, the repentance, that's where it needs to start. And it's going to take saying, what do you say should be and done to make things well? It's become a lifestyle thing, which I think is the step beyond what the charismatics did in the 90s, the identificational repentance, where I, as a Protestant, Northern, Northern Protestant, say, I'm sorry for what I did. I repent, right? Um, and the Catholic says, "I forgive you," and then I absolve all of my people are absolved, and we can just get on with continuing to swim in this water of institutional prejudice, division. And, and the wall is still here. Yeah, the wall, our walls in Northern Ireland uh, are getting bigger since our peace process. Which, again, the land is showing something there. That, yes. Uh, the peace we have is probably not the biblical shalom. It's an absence of car bombs. Uh, but it's certainly not a presence of right relationships between people. That's um, right. What I, you know, we were talking earlier. It's what I like to say is that the land tells the story. Mm, yes, yeah, the land yeah. tells the story, and you can see it on your land. Yeah, yeah. you see the you see the gate, and you. I loved how you pointed out. We were driving around earlier. We were showing me that the the gate has actually gotten taller. The wall, yeah, and the, the wall in the Shankill Road and the Falls Road. It's it is bigger. Um, yeah, Jen, have you got uh, one more question? and then we'll um, begin to wrap Maybe it up. one more question. Would that be all right? I know you've been very <laughs> yeah, good sure. to speak to us this long. I know after a long day. I feel like day. you're just getting warmed up now. I know. Are you kidding me? We could go for another, we could go for another hour when you now. Went for it. I'm, let's <laughs> yeah. preach. Um, I suppose, well, I, I've just enjoyed hearing you talk a, a little bit about the new journey of looking back, right, on your own, uh, on your family, mm -hmm. your story and your evolution, your family's evolution and how you've got to be here, basically. Um, I suppose my question for you would be, what have you found um, important in the looking back? And in the looking, how has that shaped your spiritual landscape? And um, looking back, I suppose, yeah. maybe a little bit more of a personal question, I don't know. Wow, that's a really interesting question. One I'm sure we're going to think, think a little bit more about, especially the landscape, the spiritual landscape piece. But I would say, I, say, I think for me, the, the most important thing in looking back has been it feels like a process of discovering myself more. I mean, we really, the most profound thought I think I've had in the last year is the reality that these people that I'm reading about, that I'm studying about, that I'm putting into my ancestry.com tree, you know, like they're literally in me. Mm. Like they're actually in me. I mean, their DNA is my DNA. Like mm. they're yeah. here. Mm -hmm. There and I'm not talking about like an, they know ancestor worship 
it's just oh it's your hair and your nails actually they literally make me who i am like in the most literal sense that is profound so i mean the moment when i realized how profound that was and when i started realizing wow like i had my aha moment was while researching maudlin and fortune and 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 the people who indentured them um when I realized that Fortune had had all these children and no fathers were ever mentioned, and then Sarah had had children and no fathers were ever mentioned, and I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? Are they in a brothel? Like, are they being traded in sex slave? Like, what's the deal? What's going on? So I decided just randomly to, you know, I'd got my DNA done earlier, years before, through Ancestry.com. And, but, you know, their science is increasing all the time. And so now they have the ability, you have the ability through their app, actually, to to do a surname search and see if there are other people who are blood DNA matched with you who also have, excuse me, similar surnames on their trees. And so what I found, yeah, right? So, um, so that's like, it's an indication that this is where you should start to look for common ancestors. So I did a search for the word for the for the surname Day, which was Fortune's um, indentured indenturer. Turns up like a whole page of days, like oh, wow. people who have yes. Day ancestry that I am matched with, and um, and then I said, well, what about the Fook family, Fuchs family, and um, there they have several different spellings of their name. F O O K S is one, and F O W K E S is another, and F O U K E S is a whole another one. Well, it turns up when you know you do these different variations. There's a lot of Fuchs matches with my DNA as well. Mm. Oh. So I feel like I literally felt like I uncovered a 300 year secret mm. because. Those white men who raped, most likely raped Fortune and Sarah, who were the sons probably or the father of the Days and Fortune uh, and Fuchs, nobody ever knew necessarily that they were the fathers. But Fortune went to court because she had an illegitimate child. And that illegitimate child went to court because they had an illegitimate child Mm. because they were indentured to these families. And... But then I started researching the families, like the Fuchs family goes back to 1066 in mm. in England. They were literally there with William the Conqueror mm. and in the court of King Henry VIII. Mm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, some I was there. <laughs> like something in me was like, wow, are you kidding me? Like something in my in my body. Now you take. I asked my, my my auntie, I said, auntie, you know, what do I do with this? This is really confusing mm. because I don't know that I really want Fuchs blood in me. Oh, like, nice. you know what I mean? Like, I didn't ask for that, but it's really there. It's the reality of, it's the reality of who I am. And in some ways, what I've, what I've come to understand is that I, my body, my body is the evidence of the history. Mm. My body, my DNA is the evidence of the slave trade. My DNA is the evidence of the rapes that happened serially mm-hmm. in the in the indent, in time of indenture. Mm-hmm. And and also while they might not have chosen to put their DNA into an African American's line, the reality is is that whatever the issues are that they had in their family were probably passed down to us. And whatever the strengths were, 
Right. Probably passed down to us. Right. The trauma and the healing. And the healing. And Sambo. I learned about Sambo. The fact that he's a second son. That humanized him. And that he was an entrepreneur. He was a well-respected man. And who raised a family of landowners. These black people, free black people in Maryland and Virginia, they stayed together. They lived in the same vicinity, like they moved together too. And they were landowners from the 16, not 16, from the early 1700s on in Virginia. That's amazing. It's amazing. So it tells me something about myself. I'm not a self-made person. I stand on Sambo's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And and their faith, you know, when I think back to that family, they were a family of faith. They were a family um, that um, some of the fortunes, we believe, actually were in the Episcopal Church in the very first um, black Episcopal churches in America. They were part of the people who helped to form it and establish it. And I know that my grandmother, Fortune, was a part of the Episcopal Church, and she was um, one of those folks who was she was helping people of African descent as they were fleeing the terror of the South mm-hmm. during the Great Migration when they came into America into Philadelphia. She was one of the people who was there to receive them. You know, amazing. Yeah, it is almost your your life is a beautiful, I suppose, tapestry of woven together of many different strings. And yes. Threads and, yes. Um, what a privilege to be able to sit with you for this time and, and hear a little bit more about it. I'm very excited about the book. I hope yeah. Yay, me too. to get it all researched. <laughs> we, we would, and I'd love to. How it can help. I'd love to have it right now to kind of read and. Uh, but you're still, you're still obviously I'm writing I'm still it. writing it, yeah. I am. That's why I'm here Learning. to research. Yes. So, you know, yes. I was here to research Maudlin and try to find her on this land. Mm. And we'll see. We'll see if that happens. Mm. But we did. We got a couple of yeah. clues today, which is nice. Can we just yeah. finish with one more question? Is that okay? Sure, sure, um, sure. So I remember uh, for 97, I did a big road trip through America. And we came to Montgomery, Alabama. And oh. uh, I saw not only Jefferson Davis's White House. Mm-hmm. And I also saw the Martin Luther King. Uh, monument uh it was like a waterfall uh, with yeah. the scripture um amos uh amos let uh, justice, let justice roll, roll down, down like rivers righteousness mm-hmm. like never failing stream mm-hmm. and i've i heard uh, you the other day in a talk talk about be like water around a rock or something you're kind of saying mm-hmm. if if something's stopping you you know just kind of get around it be like water yeah and, and of course biblically water did have that kind of leveling it had the capacity to kind of reach down to the very bottom and mm-hmm. not just stay at the top mm-hmm. um when you look at america today and obviously this re uh, will the un uh, the manifestation of what has always been there a kind of a, a white supremacy and um yeah we look around the world and it's not a a particularly joyful time is a time of unprecedented polarization, certainly in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, do you see what would it look like for, do you see hope? Do you see what would it look like for water, this righteousness to flow down? Is mm. it going to flow down? <laughs> or, yes. Yeah. It's going to flow. It's flowing. I feel like breaking into a vineyard song. <laughs> it's going to flow, flow, flow. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, I do actually think yeah, it's going to flow, yeah, flow, flow. Yeah, and the reason for that is because I think that there is enough disillusionment, mm-hmm. actually, um, and enough um, fed upness mm-hmm. with 
answers that don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are now beginning to look toward people of color and in particular indigenous people around the world for answers. And we just recently had the Liberating Evangelicalism Conference in Chicago, like about a few weeks back. Um, and it was led primarily by, it was led almost entirely by people of color. Um, and at the point of at the point of the spear of, the, of that um, uh, organizing committee were several indigenous um, Christians mm. who themselves have actually had incredible theologians mm. And who have been in community with other evangelicals of color um, around the country in the U.S., and it was mm. amazing. Mm. I mean, truly transformative. It was a decolonizing space. Mm. Um, it was a space that literally had no black curtains. You know, mm. in this conference, you know, they always mm. have the black curtains to like mm. focus your attention on the stage. No mm. black curtains. We saw the exit sign behind the stage. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You could see the exit doors behind the stage. Mm-hmm. There were no, there was only room lighting. There were mm-hmm. no special lights. So there was none of the bling mm-hmm. that normally masks mm-hmm. um, the the underside, mm-hmm. the the belly mm-hmm. of um, of evangelicalism. Nope, it was all out there to show. It was just, just it was mm-hmm. just reality. And there was a stage so people could be seen and there was a microphone and and there was not any one person who was the keynote and said it was conversational. Mm. And there was something that felt so utterly decolonizing about that space that people literally did not really even know how to be in that space for the full first day. But by the end, what was so true is that people had heard so many things they were not used to hearing. Half of the audience was white. And yet there were no people who walked out. Mm. And instead the white folks were leaned over their 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 pads, scribbling notes the whole time. Mm. They were hungry. Mm. They were hungry. Mm. And they were hearing things they never heard before mm. about the faith, about the scripture, what people could see in the scripture that they couldn't see mm. because they're approaching the scripture from the social location of Caesar. Mm. Not the social location of Jesus. So when you have people who have been colonized, they will see more of the scripture because the whole book was written by colonized people or people under threat of colonization, like David and Solomon. So it was unbelievable. And I think that I think what's happening right now is literally a reformation of our faith, another reformation of our faith. And what I see happening is that the 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 people who are who are at that point actually reforming the faith are people of indigenous descent. And let me just say all of us are actually of indigenous descent at some point in history. We just what we did is we broke our relationship with the land mm. when we left mm. and we broke our relationship with others when we took their land, mm. right? And what we what happened in America in, and I'm sh- in all of these colonizing spaces mm. is that what, what happens when you do that? When you get to this new land, you're no longer identified by where you live. So-and-so from something Shire, so-and-so from something lands, or um, we're now identified by what we do. We're now identified by how much we accomplish. We now identified by how much we own. 
And so, and that's, that's the result of the break. That's why it's so important, I think, to shut your ears to people. I am no longer, I don't buy books anymore from people who are, who, who are coming from the social location of colonizers. Not to say that I don't value these people. What I'm saying is that what we need now is we need to become reconnected. And these are not the people who can get us there. The people who can get us there are those who are connected. Indigenous people. Um, And I think that these are the people um, who actually see Jesus, see more of Jesus than we do because Jesus was a brown, colonized, indigenous man who came from an enslaved, a serially enslaved people. Yeah, that's really good. If we could go even there somewhere, <laughs> we, we won't. But um, we'll have to do that one. Uh, by thank Zoom. you, Lisa, for. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for yeah being a, a, a voice, an African-American voice over here in Northern Ireland for a few days. Um, but yeah, of showing, uh, I think, in a very powerful way what it's like to listen to the voice of someone who comes from a context of. Uh, of oppression and and reading the Bible faithfully and loving the Bible, but loving mm-hmm. it not because it's a tool for your uh, prosperity and, and power, but because it uh, undermines principalities and powers and mm-hmm. and pic- and paints a much more beautiful picture of a Jesus that builds bridges and knocks down walls and is a friend of the least of these and. Uh, you did a talk on that actually the other day on mm-hmm. Matthew twenty five, which mm-hmm. is brilliant. But we're not going to even ask that question. <laughs> I will only but... say he was he was he was the least of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, mm-hmm. that was very powerful when you said that mm-hmm. uh, at Rubicon on Sunday mm-hmm. about that Jesus was stripped. You know, you you used that. You talked about I was naked, um, and you yeah. gave me clothes, and and that you. What, what was that, uh, the Greek word literally there for being naked means you've been stripped. Stripped, of, yeah. Um, so you've been stripped. Yeah, naked doesn't just mean, yeah. you know, choosing to be naked. It means yeah. he was stripped of everything yeah. he had. Yeah. And Jesus was literally stripped. Yeah. And, you know, he was literally all of those things. He was literally an immigrant. He was literally thirsty. Mm-hmm. He was literally hungry. And literally, literally an immigrant. In yeah. Literally in prison. Mm-hmm. And literally sick, if you call mm-hmm. being hung on a cross mm-hmm. sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you can't say you love Jesus yeah. and not love these people. Love is the one the who least. ultimately was the least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much. And we'd love to have you back. You're always welcome. Yeah. And uh, I think your voice even today has really contributed to this whole series of podcasts and uh, of what it looks like to be a people who um, embody a, a faith that warms society and, you know, brings life to society mm-hmm. rather than uh, burns so uh, thanks. Thank you for your life, your work. Keep going, and you're always welcome here. Thank you so much, John and Jen. Yes, yes. just thank you so much, and keep your eyes out for the book coming, hopefully, inshallah, in 2020. Yes, fortune. Yeah. Yay, yeah, yeah, fortune. Yeah, yeah. So. Can't wait. Okay, thank you. Thank you.